Good evening and welcome to Amplify, a telephone talk show that looks at life from a religious perspective. I'm Father Ron Lenguin, hoping that you have felt the warmth of God's love in your life this day, but especially the joy you feel when you share God's love with others. Each week, I like to begin our program with a story that is based on faith and formed with imagination. Master Peter asked, Must all men have a woman at their side? Jesus didn't answer, but continued drawling with a stick he held in his hands. Peter grew impatient, waiting for an answer, and finally asked again, but this time in anger, Master, must every man choose a woman to lie at his side? No, Peter, Jesus said. But then you should think before you ask such a question. Now Peter was confused, even hurt by Jesus' remark, and asked in a much softer, almost apologetic voice, Master, what's so foolish about my question? As one who has taken a woman, as one who now sleeps alone, you should know the answer yourself, Jesus answered. Some men are chosen to care for and provide for my father's children on earth, others to instill my father's special love in them. Some men are to experience a woman's closeness, others to know only that it exists, and experience instead God's closeness in a special way. But my father has given both gifts to you, Peter, so that you may experience the fullness of life in both a woman's love and in my father's love which is the greatest gift, Master. Jesus smiled, and then and only then did he look up. Peter, Peter, why must such a comparison and choice be made? Each of us is chosen for a special task and given a special love, provided with the key to open the door to some of life's greatest lessons and joys through either the closeness to a woman or closeness to my Father. Marriage is a gift, Peter. No man is forced to take of its blessings, but if he does, he must also bear the pains and sorrows that accompany its breaking forth and its growth. He is obligated to care for and nurture the life with which he has become one. And again, I say to those of you who have left your wives for a while in order to follow me, my father and I have given you a special love, which you in turn must now show and teach to others. Peter looked admiringly at Jesus and was filled with strength and love. He asked, Master, why haven't you taken a woman? Jesus smiled and answered, It is not my will, but my Father's. I have many children like you, Peter. I am to be a teacher of all, not only of a few. Then Jesus bent over, and picked up a handful of dirt and let the grains fall slowly into the palm of Peter's hand. My friend, the body will die, be placed in the earth, and turn to dust. But all men will return to my father's home. Their souls shall enter his kingdom. Peter shook his head and said, Master, what does this have to do with what we've been discussing? Peter, like man, each grain of soil is so much alike 
and yet so much different. And each is marked with my Father's love. My Father calls each man to a special way of living, but it is man who makes the choice upon the earth. And when his decision has been made, there is no changing, for my Father's rules are simple and must be obeyed. No one walks alone, Peter. No one walks alone. Each of us is accompanied by the Spirit of my Father's love. The Book of Sacraments is an anthology compiled by Al Smith, mainly of two books written by Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. The two books are titled, These Are the Sacraments, written in 1962, and There and Three, To Get Married, written in 1951. I'd like to begin by reading a little from the beginning and the end of the introduction to These Are the Sacraments. No one can understand the sacraments unless he has what might be called a divine sense of humor. A person is said to have a sense of humor if he can, quote-unquote, see through things. One lacks a sense of humor if he cannot see through things. No one has ever laughed at a pun who did not see in the one word a twofold meaning. To materialists, this world is opaque like a curtain. Nothing can be seen through it. A mountain is just a mountain, a sunset just a sunset. But to poets, artists, and saints, the world is transparent like a window pane. It tells of something beyond. For example, a mountain tells of the power of God, the sunset of his beauty, and the snowflake of his purity. When the Lord incarnate walked this earth, he brought to it what might be called a quote-unquote divine sense of humor. There's only one thing that he took seriously, and that was the soul. He said, quote, what exchange shall man give for his soul? Close quote. Everything else was a telltale of something else. Sheep and goats, wine bottles and patches on clothing, camels and eyes of needles, the lightning flash and the red of the sunset sky, the fisherman's net, Caesar's coin, chalices, and rich men's gates. All of these were turned into parables and made to tell the story of the kingdom of God. Our Lord had a divine sense of humor because he revealed that the universe was sacramental. A sacrament, in a very broad sense of the term, combines two elements, one visible, the other invisible one that can be seen or tasted or touched or heard, the other unseen to the eyes of the flesh. A principal philosophy states, whatever is received is received according to the mode of the one receiving it. If you pour water into a blue glass, it looks blue. If you pour it into a red glass, it looks red. If you pour water into the parched earth, it is quite different than water poured onto a carpet or into soil, into oil. So too, when the blood of Christ and its merits flood in upon the soul, it depends upon the one receiving it. Does the soul come for strengthening, for nourishment, for healing, for a long journey? For induction into the spiritual army. 
the effects will differ as to whether a person is spiritually dead or spiritually living. If a member of the church is spiritually dead, then it will revive him as does the sacrament of penance or the sacrament of baptism. Against once again this evening is Alan Smith, who is the founder and director of the Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen Missions Society of Canada and editor of the best-selling book, The Cries of Jesus from the Cross, the Fulton Sheen Anthology, which we talked with Alan in, in, uh, in 2019. He has served the church for many years as a Catholic evangelist, radio host, writer, internet broadcaster, and retreat director. He's also served on the board of directors of the Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen Foundation in Peoria, Illinois, promoting the cause of Sheen's canonization. Al, welcome back to Amplify. Father Ron, it is great to be here again and uh, have fond memories of our conversation two years ago as we spoke about Sheen's writings on the cross and his seven last words. And uh, today, I think we're going to talk a little bit about his writings on the sacraments and marriage. So uh, I think food for thought for everyone. I think we all have been touched by the sacraments, and many of us have been touched by marriage. So uh, it's going to be a great uh, conversation this evening. Tell us a little bit about uh, your love for Archbishop Sheen as expressed in this and other anthologies of which we discussed previously. As a matter of fact, you have read uh, all of his more than 60 books and he certainly has inspired you as he has millions of people for many decades. Yes. Well, my love for Sheen came later in my life. And I, I say later in that uh, I was in my mid-40s. Uh, I'm now 60 years old, not to reveal too much. But uh, we were dropping, uh, my wife and I were dropping our daughter off at a small Catholic college. And uh, at some point during the visit, uh, my wife received a number of free books from the library that were tattered and uh, of course she started to read some of these books to me and one of them was Fulton Sheen's book Peace of Soul, uh, a classic uh, work from 1949 and in that uh, first line of that book Fulton Sheen wrote, unless souls are saved, nothing is saved and once I read that I knew Fulton Sheen had my attention because how many people today are talking about saving souls or do you have a soul? And um, so I just started to, um, again, look into his works and started to realize that Fulton Sheen, in essence, was a good parish priest uh, with a very large parish, uh, mind you, because he had uh, four to five million people tuning into his uh, weekly uh, Catholic Hour broadcast. And so he was providing a very beautiful catechesis for a number of years. And then, of course, there was those television years where he had uh, 20 to 30 million people tuning in uh, every week to his Life is Worth Living television broadcast. But uh, my love for him came through just a few of his books. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed a little book called Victory Over Vice, which was Sheen's writings about the seven deadly sins and how to overcome them with the help of the seven last words. And so, um, again, I just started to understand that Fulton Sheen had so many converts, uh, I guess, to his record because he somehow convinced us that uh, you could trust the church, 
you could trust Christ, um, that Christ came into this world to save us. And uh, he would talk about this great love story of the incarnation, uh, almost to the point where you started to believe him. <laughs> and, um, you know, people would say, I, I think Fulton Sheen and Jesus Christ are best friends, uh, because he sure does talk a great deal about him and his love for him. So, again, this love for his writings came uh, in, I want to say, mid-flight, I guess, I, um, in the, these, uh, I don't know which, yes. how to c- categorize those years in your 40s, but, uh, and I wasn't saying it's a midlife crisis, just a midlife experience where I fell in love with his writings. And so uh, being a radio guy in Canada and having my own show for 20 years, I went to the uh, station manager and asked permission to uh, replay some of Sheen's classic recordings from his radio addresses and his, his of course, lectures. And uh, they've been well-received. We've had that show for 10 years now up in Canada. And um, again, how he touches lives to uh, both Catholics and Protestants alike. He was able to um, just uh, reach into every corner of the world and somehow preach the gospel without offending anyone. And, uh, of course, uh, this is why I think the church has uh, moved forward to uh, almost declare him a saint. I know they're very close to, um, again, his beatification. I, they're just waiting, uh, the group in Peoria, just waiting on the Vatican to uh, give them a new date uh, to have a beatification celebration. But, uh, again, the world uh, took notice of Fulton Sheen, and, and truly the world did. Uh, he is known and respected all over the world, not only by yours truly, but by so many of your listeners and uh, people you know, across this planet. So uh, not to go on too long, Father, uh, again, I could speak uh, about sure. his personal testimonies uh, for a long time, but uh, he touched my life in a very special way through his writings. He writes that the uh, sacraments derive their power and efficacy from the passion, death, and resurrection of the Lord. Can you amplify on that just a little bit? Yeah, I think, um, you know, when I, when I look at uh, this whole idea of what Fulton Sheen um, was saying about the sacraments, it's, he wanted us to understand that we really need the sacraments in our life. It's, um, you need these channels of divine grace. And so, of course, he uh, goes through, um, and this is, you know, throughout the book, not just uh, Fulton Sheen, but also Father John Harden. And, um, you know, I say to the listeners that uh, Father Harden was, uh, of course, I like to say a, um, a contemporary of Fulton Sheen, but um, I think they, they were seen together many times. And, um, of course, Father Harden wrote a great series of uh, catechism lessons and uh, is known. And he also talks a great deal about the power and efficacy of the sacraments um, uh, in the book. And um, I know that, uh, as you said, Father, the sacraments are derived, they derive their power and efficacy from the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord. And um, again, I think we, we look at each sacrament is instituted by Christ. And so I think that's where we have to really take this seriously, is that uh, it doesn't matter if it's baptism, the Eucharist, marriage, holy orders, uh, the last rites, these were all founded by Christ. And so the power of Christ, his death and resurrection are in the sacraments. When I read from the book, uh, 
Calvary is like a reservoir of divine life or grace from it. There flow seven different kinds of sanctification for man in different stages of his spiritual existence. Each of these seven channels is a sacrament by which the power of the risen Christ is bestowed on souls. Uh, the sacraments do not confer grace as magical signs. They communicate it only because they are in contact with the risen Christ. And here I'm jumping around just a little bit on page 26. So too, the blood of Christ applied at different moments of life results in a different kind of power. And that's kind of the introduction then to uh, the seven sacraments. And I'd like to, to talk about each one of them in just in a little way so we can get into uh, the, the latter part of, of, of the book. But is there something more you'd like to say about uh, what we were just talking about? Right. And I, I think um, just this is more of a general statement, but um, I think what Fulton Sheen was trying to do uh, in 1962 when he wrote this book, um, he knew that most people still didn't really know the sacraments well. Uh, yes, people can name the seven sacraments, but do they really know what baptism um, has, you know, what, what it entails, um, the power and efficacy of baptism? Uh, do they really understand the Eucharist, that it's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord? And uh, do they really understand what happened during confirmation? Um, sometimes we're social. Al, Al let, me, let me break in. You know what a hard, a hard break is. We have our uh, first breaking up, so when we come back, if you hold on that, we'll come back, continue to talk with uh, Al about the sacraments. Welcome back to Amplify, where our guest this evening is Alan Smith, talking about an anthology that he has put together, Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments. Um, Al, um, I, I froze you while you were still speaking. Can you remember the point that you were making? Right. The point was that I was making was that uh, Fulton Sheen uh, knew that uh, we all need help with the sacraments. We we need a good roadmap. We need a we need a good uh, teaching manual. And so, in 1962, uh, I believe you know Fulton Sheen wanted to give uh, everyone uh, you know a book that every home should have, you know, to know what the sacraments are because. We've kind of lost our way uh, to some degree. I think a lot of us are social. Um, I want to just say social is the sacraments. It's like we do them because our families celebrate these great events. And um, But do we really know what the sacraments are? And so I believe, you know, Fulton Sheen in 1962 wanted to leave something uh, behind. And here we are 60 years later. I just felt this desire to say, Everyone needs a good map, a good guide of what the sacraments are. Because if we if we quizzed uh, our neighbor about the sacraments, uh, many of us would give very poor answers. We don't. We have to almost admit we really don't know the depth of the sacraments, what what we're receiving, uh, and uh, what we're, of course. Um, I want to say, um, helping us get to heaven. We need the sacraments to get to heaven. So uh, I don't think people really understand this. So uh, this is a timely release of this, uh, these writings. But uh, again, I think we're going to go and unpackage them a little bit together. But, uh, and this is what I found. When I read this book that he penned in 1962, 
I started to appreciate the sacraments that I have and that my children and, of course, um, people in my parish are receiving. So, uh, again, this is a great appreciation book for me, and I'm sure it'll be for uh, those who pick up a copy and uh, take it seriously. So, uh, again, it's food for the journey. Let's um, see uh, how many of the sacraments we can just touch on, which is what we're doing on a book, an anthology, certainly, that is so rich, beginning with the sacrament of... uh, a baptism, um, I, um, I, I've highlighted, much like you told me you do, um, uh, the book, and uh, certain passages just jump out at me, and uh, this is the one, one of the ones that jumped out in baptism. He writes, baptism infuses seven virtues into the soul, the first three of which relate to God himself, namely faith, hope, and charity. We are thus enabled to believe in him, hope in him, and love him. But four other virtues, called moral virtues, are related to the means of attaining God. These are prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. By the right use of things for God's sake, by paying our debts to God, by being brave about witnessing our faith, and temperate about even the legitimate pleasures of life, we reach God more quickly. Um, What would you like to say about the sacrament of baptism? Yes. um, You know, that that infusion of virtues that you talked about uh, is so important. And I think um, when I I look at the early church and how there was the baptistry um, in that, you know, a child was not allowed to enter the church until they received baptism. Um, you know, catechumens had to stay outside the church until they were brought in with, through baptism. And Fulkenstein really explains that you're born with original sin, and that needs to be removed with the waters of baptism. And um, it, it almost introduced the spiritual battle that we're against, uh, that we face every day between good and evil, between uh, the devil and, uh, of course, choosing God. And you need to begin with baptism. Uh, Of course, those passage, uh, scripture passages that we are reminded of, of Nicodemus. And uh, again, we need, first of all, to receive a share in Christ's divine life. And we have to remind everyone that Christ instituted the sacrament of baptism in order to provide us with a share of his own divinity. Uh, again, when, I, when Christ told Nicodemus that he must be reborn of water and the Spirit, he meant this literally. He presented that we have a, a principle of a natural life for the body, which is the human soul. And what he revealed to the wondering Nicodemus, however, was that we are also to have uh, a life from above. And uh, again, St. Augustine called it the soul of the soul. Uh, But whatever name you give the source of life for the human spirit, we dare not question that Christ provided the means of obtaining this new life through baptism. And so, um, you know, I think it's this idea that it's necessary. And I think it's just Fulton Sheen uh, describes the urgency that we should all have to uh, baptize our children and to uh, encourage people to receive the gift of baptism. And I know that, Father, you have baptized young and old over the years, but I think this is what I really got from this chapter was how important uh, Mm -hmm. baptism is. 
Sacrament of Confirmation, this jumped out. Our Lord's teaching, as recorded in the Gospels, was implemented, complemented, and revealed in its deeper meaning through the spirit of truth he gave to his church. We indeed know Christ by reading the Gospels, but we see the deeper meaning of the words, and we know Christ more completely when we have his spirit. It is only through the spirit that we know he is the divine son of God and redeemer of humanity. I'm sorry, what I'm going to do when I read these in the future, I'm going to tell you exactly what page they're on. But this was on page 50. Right. Well, I think what happens with the sacrament of confirmation is that uh, people forget that it is... um, you know, a sacrament of combat. <laughs> and I just say, you know, I think of when I, you know, interview uh, a, a more mature audience and I ask them to tell me about their experience when they were confirmed. And uh, there was that, uh, I want to say, the anointing of oil on the forehead, but that uh, little tap on the cheek. And, uh, of course, it was to, um, you know, kind of to sharpen you up to say you're going out to battle. It was almost again, a blow that you had to receive. But uh, again, do we really uh, understand that we're, in, we're going to engage in battle, that this is a sacrament of uh, both martyrdom, but also battle? So um, again, the urgency of taking it seriously. A lot of us sometimes just go through the motions uh, with these sacraments. And um, But uh, again, I, I, I was blessed to have a good catechist that uh, really stressed this it's a personal combat and that you're a soldier for Christ. And um, now you're going to go out and preach and teach and uh, live the faith. So uh, I think that's one thing I really um, learned. I know that confirmation is both personal and social. And uh, again, it's the sacrament of the lay apostolate. And um, I certainly agree with what you said uh, as we talked a little bit earlier this week that we could take any one of these topics, each of the of the sacraments, for example, and spend the whole program on it. Really, it, it mm-hmm. is so rich. On page uh, the the Eucharist now, especially, which is so incredibly important. Um, there's so there's so much that uh, I have highlighted. I'm not quite sure where I want to go, but let me go to page 68 where Archbishop Sheen writes, Man has a soul as well as a body. The spiritual part of him demands a food, which is above the material and the physical and the biological. Some would call a halt to the law that all life must nourish itself and assert that the soul can find its satisfying food here below without any appeal to a higher life. But the broken minds and tortured hearts testify to the fact that nothing can satisfy the soul hunger of man except the nourishment suited to his soul and its aspirations for the perfect. A canary does not consume the same kind of food as a boa constrictor because its nature is different. Man's soul, being spiritual, demands a spiritual food. In order of grace, this divine food is the Eucharist or the communion of man with Christ and Christ with man. 
I just have to say amen to that. <laughs> amen. And, and, you know, when I look at the chapter on uh, the Eucharist, um, there is, again, a, a section on the tabernacle. And uh, I just think of how so many of us were taught a beautiful tradition of just doing those little visits to the church. Um, now, I know many churches are closed through the day, but uh, we were all taught this, um, that our Lord is present in the tabernacle, that he's present in every church throughout the world, that he's there, body, blood, soul, and divinity, just waiting for a visit or at least waiting for an acknowledgement from us. Um, even if we drive by a little tip of the hat, a little uh, word of I love you. And so uh, this is one thing that people who are non-Catholic uh, will testify that when they enter into a Catholic church and just sit there for uh, 5, 10, 15 minutes, uh, they will feel this presence that's there in the church. And of course, uh, Fulton Sheen has uh, wrote, written that in many of his books, that experience of, uh, you know, do an experiment, go into a Catholic church, sit there uh, for some time, and you will have a great peace that will overcome you. Um, and uh, again, it is our Lord present in the tabernacle. So uh, a little reminder, because sometimes we do forget. I think we uh, get a little absent-minded, but our Lord is there, and he is present. So um, again, that touched my heart in that chapter, uh, just to remind me of, of the tabernacle. And uh, again, there's so much in that chapter. As you said, Father, we could do a show uh, yes. <laughs> just on each sacrament. And just quickly, the uh, the effects of the Eucharist uh, uh, begin on page 69. I'll just give the uh, the headlines. Uh, first effect, union with the life of Christ. Second effect, union with the death of Christ. And the third effect, communion with the mystical body of Christ. Um, and he writes, the body can live without an individual cell, but the cell cannot live without the body. No man can live the divine life without some incorporation, either in fact or in desire, with the mystical body of Christ, which is the church. Yes. And, and I think sometimes we forget that the Mass um, is Calvary reenacted, um, that it is our Lord coming back down to the earth, and uh, Calvary is represented in a, a non-bloody a non way, of course, and we of the Eucharist is confected at Holy Mass. And so uh, we forget, uh, and again, Fulton Sheen wrote a beautiful book in 1936 called Calvary and the Mass, where he shows us that. And um, again, it's one of these things, we forget about the passion of our Lord. And uh, again, the Holy Thursday when he instituted the Eucharist, but he did it out of love. And so we think of that scripture that says, I will not leave you orphaned. <laughs> our, our Lord is there. He's present. And of course, uh, uh, we get to uh, partake of his glory, of course, when we receive him in the Eucharist. So uh, a great intimacy and a great privilege. And uh, Fulton Sheen would talk a great deal about touching the Lord and having these encounters. And, of course, his holy hours that he uh, shared mm -hmm. about uh, he, that the power of the holy hour to encourage everyone to pray an hour each day uh, in front of the Blessed Sacrament, if they could. Uh, again, the uh, blessings to his own spiritual life through this devotion. Sacrament of penance. Uh, 
I have a passage highlighted on page 78. We are captives of sin. Just as a prisoner cannot release himself from the chafing bars or chains, so neither can the sinner without the power of the Spirit. To God alone belongs the initiative in this sacrament. It is his voice which calls us to repentance. We may make our confessions because our conscience urges us to do so, but the voice that speaks to us is the voice of the Holy Spirit telling us of God's mercy and love and righteousness. Under the impetus of the Holy Spirit, the soul feels like Lazarus risen from the dead. Yes. Uh, for, for me, the, on the chapter on the sacrament of penance, it's, um, what caught my eye was the examination of conscience. And uh, I think uh, this is what I'm seeing more and more now is that people are uh, starting to write about are you examining your conscience uh, before you go to confession? Are you examining your conscience every evening before you go to bed, uh, before you finally uh, fall asleep? And um, the need to examine our conscience, the need to be almost our own accuser, uh, to really look inside and say what we're, what we're failing to do. And, and I think that's something that has really helped myself and so many others is, is developing this practice of a daily examination of conscience. And so, um, again, I think with something where in the spiritual life, um, we sometimes uh, just wait five minutes before we go to confession. Uh, we stand in line and kind of examine our conscience there. But uh, if we took up that holy habit of examining our conscience every day, uh, it would help us a great deal, uh, especially in the sacrament of penance. The sacrament of the anointing of the sick, on page 103, he writes, To understand the sacrament, one must never lose hold of the fact that where there is a double life, biological and spiritual, so there is a double death, death of the body and death of the soul. St. John writes, since from book of Revelation, quote, Thou dost pass for a living man, and all the while art a corpse. A body may be physically alive, but the soul spiritually dead. Such would be a person in the state of serious sin and alienation from God. We see corpses walking on the street every day. Biological life is in them, but not spiritual life. The real reason man dies in his flesh is because his soul, having turned away from God, has lost the dominion it once exercised over the body. Father, I know that you've anointed many people and, uh, of course, um, you know, brought this sacrament to, to so many. But I think people sometimes forget that it's, it's hopefully to make you well. I think sometimes we uh, think of the sacrament of the sick for the dying. Um, and, and sometimes it is for the dying or it's used for the dying. But it's also, I mean, its purpose is to help cure the sick and uh, to, uh, you know, lay, put, to put oil, um, to anoint one with oil to hopefully uh, see a healing. And so I'm sure you've seen many people recover uh, after you know, the anointing of the sick, but it's not just for the dying, <laughs> those who are on their last, um, you know, moments on their deathbed. It's for the sick and to bring them, hopefully bring them back to health. So uh, by healing the soul, I, I find the body responds accordingly. 
Sacrament of Holy Orders, and we'll finish uh, in just two minutes, well, less than two minutes, then we'll talk a lot about marriage in the second half of the program. On page 111, our blessed Lord is the mediator between God and man, being both God and man. But in order to mediate his redemption, he desires human instruments between himself and the world, each of whom will be quote, the minister and dispenser of the mysteries of God, close quote from 1 Corinthians. And so some men are appointed by God to deliver the sacraments to others, just as in human societies, one group serves and ministers to other, others, and then this, this quote from Hebrews, the purpose of which any high priest is chosen from among his fellow man and made a representative of men in their dealings with God is to offer gifts and sacrifices in expiation of their sins. Sacrament that I received a long time ago. And, uh, well, let's, let's end there. Let me just read us out to, to, uh, to, the, to our next break. Since you formed... Christ the priest and victim in thy body, form him, I beg thee in my heart. Do this, that in addition to the words of consecration at Mass, I may say them as thou didst gaze on thy Son on the cross. This is my body, this is my blood. Then I shall, through thy help, live and die with him. Welcome back to uh, Amplify, and um, our guest this evening is Al Smith. He has written an anthology, more than one anthology, um, on um, Archbishop Sheen's um, books. Um, this one, the book of sacraments. And uh, during the break, I'm sitting here thinking, how do I want to begin the second hour of the program? Do I want to move right ahead, or do I want to do one of the... Uh, the summaries that uh, Archbishop Sheen himself puts in the first book we've been talking about, I decided um, now that I want to I want to go to uh, what uh, Archbishop Sheen himself has said uh, on page 147. Just skipping around here a little bit, the seven sacraments are the seven kisses of God. From a point of view, the seven sacraments represent the seven kisses of God. There seems to be seven bestowals of affection in the great crises of life. God, too, has his seven kisses for the soul. The kiss is often mentioned in sacred scripture. Quote, greet one another with the kiss of the saints from 2 Corinthians. And a little bit later, the holy kiss, which was given in the early church, was a kind of symbol of the seven kisses with which God greets the soul. At the beginning of divine life, he kisses the soul when it is born in baptism, when he feeds the soul in the Eucharist, when he forgives sins in the sacrament of penance, when he blots out the traces of the disease of sin in the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. God kisses the soul of the priest and the bishop when he ordains and consecrates them. And finally, God kisses the soul of the bride and groom as they symbolize the church and himself. 
kind of a summarizing, but let's move on, Al, to the, to the second part of the book. In the second book, Three to Get Married. Uh, rather than my reading, since I chose to do what I've already done, tell us a little bit about the differences that Archbishop Sheen points out between the differences of sex and love. Right. Uh, Fulton Sheen spends the, I think, the first six chapters of the book talking about sex and love. And because um, people of always think of marriage and they think of sex when they hear of the topic of marriage. But, um, you know, Fulton Sheen begins uh, his first chapter and he says that love is primarily in the will, not in the emotions or the glands. The will is like the voice. The emotions are like the echo. The pleasure associated with love or what is today called sex is the frosting on the cake. Its purpose is to make us love the cake, not ignore it. The great illusion of lovers is to believe that the intensity of their sexual attraction is the guarantee of the perpetuity of their love. Uh, it is because of this failure to distinguish between the glandular and the spiritual or between sex and what we have in common with animals and love, which we have in common with God, that marriages are sometimes so full of deception. Mm -hmm. uh, but Fulton Sheen, uh, got, you know, he went right to the point and said, be very careful if your marriage is based on sex alone. Because when the sex is gone, then the marriage usually deteriorates. So, again, he uh, wants to really clarify that there is a difference between sex and love. Yeah, that he says there are two extremes to be avoided in discussing married love. One is the refusal to recognize sexual love, and the other is the giving of primacy to sexual attraction. And then on page 61, well, I could, I could go for the rest of this part of this chapter, it's almost all underlined, um, but he writes, the sense of emptiness, melancholy, and frustration is a consequence of the failure to find infinite satisfaction in what is carnal and limited. Despair is disappointed hedonism. The most depressed spirits are those who seek God in a false God. And a little bit later, if sex does not mount to heaven, it descends into hell. There is no such thing as giving the body without giving the soul. Yes. And to add to that, Father, uh, Fulton Sheen writes that, um, you know, every woman instinctively realizes the difference between the two. But man comes to understand it more slowly through reason and prayer. Man is driven by pleasure. Woman by the meaning of pleasure. And I love how Fulton Sheen, he gives an analogy here. He says, two glasses that are empty cannot fill up one another. There must be a fountain of water outside the glasses in order that they may have communion with one another. It takes three to make love. Right. Um, well, let's, let's move on. There's, there's so much yeah. to, to yeah. cover. Our vital energies, the just the one part that I have uh, highlighted is begins on page 173, where he writes at the bottom, sex is rightly called a mystery. 
it has its matter and form. Its matter is the physical power of generation. Its form is its power to share in the creative purposes of God. Because sex is related to creativity, and God is the source of all creativity, sex is seen to have an intimate bond with religion. Because it is a summons to share in creation, and because man and woman are God's co-workers and quarrying humanity, there is an awesomeness about the act. That is why all peoples have associated marriage with a religious ceremony. So true, so true. Um, I know that, uh, again, Fulton Sheen quotes Pius Twelfth at the end of the chapter when uh, he's in addressing to mothers that he says the sense of modesty is akin to the sense of religion. Uh, but again, these vital energies that flow uh, in a marriage, if people would just tap into, um, I want to say, the spiritual side of their marriage. I know, Father, we'll continue now to the third chapter about yes. what love is. Right. Um, it takes three to make love for lover and beloved or bound. And we're going to find this in the, is it the next chapter? A um, little bit, we're going to talk about three that 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 it takes three to make love uh, to yeah, ma uh, on page 175 goodness knowledge and similarity so uh, love has three causes goodness knowledge and similarity it is possible for man to mistake what is good for him but it is impossible for him not to desire goodness man is right in trying to fill up his life his mind his body his house with what is good he may be wrong, perhaps, and what he chooses is good, but without the desire for goodness, there would be no love, whether it be love of country, love of friend, or love of spouse. Through love, every heart seeks to acquire a perfection or a good which it lacks, or else to express the perfection that it already has. And I know, I know that if when people would read this book, they would have their own their own particular passages that uh, in their uniqueness and the uniqueness of their life's experience, they would want to underline um, without a doubt. Yes. In the foreword of the book, uh, in, in the introduction I wrote, I, I mentioned that uh, this can be a difficult read because you have to keep pausing. You have to keep putting the book down because there's lines that just will touch your heart. And uh, I know you've spent a great deal of time highlighting so many pa passages and the same for me. Uh, but I do warn people as they pick up a copy of this book that they will have to pause often. And, you know, I think of a line that struck me in that chapter uh, that God loves us because he puts his goodness into us. And we find it there. And so I know when a spouse is having difficulty uh, loving the other, uh, if they just remind themselves that the goodness that God is in there, uh, they, can, they find them to be more lovable. So again, I'll repeat that. God loves us because he puts his goodness into us and finds it there. Um, say a little bit more about uh, the three, it takes three to make love. And then he writes about the four effects of love are unity, mutual indwelling, ecstasy, 
and zeal, beginning on pages 179, for example. Okay. Yeah. I, I think of, you know, again, he talks about, you know, all love craves unity. And uh, again, I think what he's saying here, of course, is he's trying to uh, give it as an ideal to say that uh, you want to be united to your spouse in all things. Um, because love craves unity. Uh, we have explained why some heroic souls are willing to take on sufferings and sins of others. Uh, we think of a loving mother uh, faced with a child's pain. Um, Christ so identified himself with sinners that he began to sweat, I, can, I think, you know, sweat uh, drops of blood. And I think he wants to give us that holy example that you enter into marriage to lay down your life for another. And I, I think that's sometimes a hard concept to grasp, but Fulton Sheen uh, puts it out there and says, marriage a lot of times is about laying down your life for another, for someone you love. And so very difficult, but it is possible. Any points, he writes that God never takes back his love. Though we are sinners, we may betray him, but he never abandons us. And he writes that the difference between love of humans and love of God is that in human love, ecstasy comes at the beginning, but in the love of God, it comes only at the end after one has passed through much suffering and agony of soul. Yes. And I'm, um, Fulton Sheen reminds us, he's, you know, and again, he's warning us that he says that love that is held together only by the flesh is as, flat, is, is as fragile as the flesh. But love which is held together by a spiritual oneness and based on a love of a common destiny is truly until death do us part. And as he ends this particular chapter, What Love Is, titled What Love Is, uh, writes, All have understood one of the most beautiful effects of love, its zeal, which makes them fools for one another, and then he has a quote from 1 Corinthians, we are fools for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Let's move then to uh, it takes three to make, to make, well, no, let's talk about the three tensions of love. First of all, um, where he writes that despite the highest idealism, there are potentials for conflict in marriage. Marriage has three basic tensions which are always inseparable from it because they are grounded in the metaphysical nature of man. And he talks about uh, those, those three then throughout this chapter. And I agree with you that uh, he is, the, he is, a, he is a, a mostly a philosopher, that's his background, but theology and, and uh, spirituality uh, abide also, and what he does is he he provides so many lessons of human nature. He writes about human nature that helps us to understand those deeper truths. True, true. I mean, I think of you know he speaks to say the third tension uh, that he mentions in this the three tensions of love, and he says the third tension is that of the finite and the infinite. And he says, no human heart wants love for two more minutes or two more years, but forever. 
And, and I think sometimes we don't really speak in the terms of eternity and that love is forever. And uh, again, it's that connection between the finite and the infinite. And um, I know Fulton Sheen expands on that thought throughout the book, uh, especially towards the last few chapters. Uh, but again, uh, he does make us ponder. Uh, you know, again, uh, he is a philosopher at heart, that's for sure. And as he closes uh, this chapter, The Three Tensions of Love, he writes um, on page 201, Do not think that life is a snare or an illusion. It would be that only if there were no infinite, capital I, to satisfy your yearnings. Rather, husband and wife should say, We both want a love that will never die and will have no moments of hate or satiety. That love lies beyond both of us. Let us therefore use our marital love for one another to bring us to that perfect blissful love, which is God. Um, and I could, I could read on, but uh, rather than do that, just to give some sense of it and, and we can continue to move on a little bit more. Um, chapter five, it takes three to make love. Uh, what is he t say a little bit more what he means by that, even though we've uh, uh, sort of talked over it? Yes, and I know that we're coming up to a break uh, shortly, but uh, that whole concept of bringing in the spiritual, it's a man, a woman, and God. But he begins the chapter by saying, Love is the basic passion of man. Every emotion of the heart is reducible to it. Without love, we would never become better, for love is the impetus to perfection, the fulfillment of what we have not. Love in the broad sense of the term is found wherever there is existence. But Fulton Jean really um, is not afraid to, um, to really challenge couples to say, you need to have God in this mix. Um, it will help you understand the mystery of marriage, that uh, God is the creator of all life. But uh, again, it is, uh, I think, how he ends the chapter so powerfully. He said, God never intended that the I and the thou should be separated. God is no obstacle to the full enjoyment of self, nor is he a comp competitor to the love of neighbor. But when love becomes triune, God is installed in the center of the I and the thou, thus preventing the I from being an egotist and the thou from becoming a tool or instrument of pleasure. Such love is God in pilgrimage. But if we would seek the reason why it, it, why it takes three to make love, we must look into the heart of God himself. Yes. And... Um, uh at the end of the first quote at the beginning uh, that you read, uh, he writes, animal love is tied down to what can be tasted, seen, touched, and heard. But man's love is as universal as goodness, beauty, and truth. Man can know and love not only a good meal, but goodness with a capital G. He may not always love what is best for him, but this never destroys his power to love love, capital L, which is God. And let me just read us out then uh, to, our, to uh, our next break. Uh, 
you read the very end of the, the last paragraph. I'll go to the one before in page 211. The poor frustrated souls who are locked up inside their own minds keep their little egotistical heads too busy and their selfish hands and feet too idle. If they would begin loving their neighbor for God's sake, they would soon find themselves loving their own moral perfection, which consists not in seeing their self-will, but in living according to God's will. This double law of love of self and neighbor and God is the secret of life. For our Savior, after giving the law of God and neighbor, said, do this and thou shalt find life. Welcome back to Amplify, where our guest this evening is Al Smith. He has uh, put together an anthology titled Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments. Hard to believe we only have only 20 minutes left. Um, and um, the next one, in the next chapter is Love is Triune, and perhaps this paragraph uh, says most of what we might like to say. If He writes, if we would seek out the mystery of why love has a triune character and implies lover, beloved, and love, we must mount to God himself. Love is triune in God because in him there are three persons and in the one divine nature. Love has this triple character because it is a reflection of of the love of God in whom there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, and I don't think there's any more to add than that. And I know that we don't have much time to go through another 14 chapters, but we'll do our <laughs> best. And uh, oh, we're not you know, yeah. Where would you like to go to... next? Why don't you select well, where you'd like to go next? I think we need to spend a little bit of time talking about you know, a paternity and motherhood and the role of children. Um, you know, I think the book is put into four sections, and we've been talking about the chapters on love and sex and a little bit towards the mystery of marriage. But I think uh, a lot of times, you know, we need to spend some time on Sheen's writings on, on you know, uh, motherhood, uh, the role of children, Mary, motherhood in the home, because um, these are uh, spiritual strategies he gives to couples in this book. And so, um, you know, I think of going right to chapter 13, which is uh, the chapter on generation. Um, again, how Fulton Sheen brings to our attention many times uh, sacred scripture. And as you uh, go through this book, you'll see that there's a scripture, almost like a, a scripture passage on every page. Uh, he loves to, of course, uh, bring to our attention these gentle reminders from God to be fruitful and multiply and to uh, also then let the little children come to him, so uh, to be open to life. So he does speak a great deal in this chapter on a generation and asking couples to be open to life. And, uh, of course, uh, he quotes the, um, the higher um, levels of divorce in couples that don't have children. So uh, the importance of generation. I don't know if there's something, Father, that uh, caught your attention in Chapter 13. Um, yeah, much. But uh, let me um, go to the end on page uh, 312. 
where uh, he writes, the more marriage union is based on the divine, the more the husband and wife are in harmony with God, the more they find in each other that eternal fascination and satisfaction which transcends earthly frailties and disappointments. Such love reaches to the soul itself, invisible and immaterial, whose beauty can only augment with age, even while the beauty of the body fades. Love is then the love of the spirit itself, powerful as only spiritual love can be. I will, I'll end there, although it, it goes on much further. Yes, yes. And I think this is what's so important is that um, we don't really spend enough time just thinking of the blessing that children are. Like when we think of the scriptures, you know, uh, children are a blessing from the Lord. And so uh, the beauty uh, that couples experience when having children. But again, Fulton Sheen will expand some more, I think, on that as we continue to dive in some of these other chapters through the book. I know uh, chapter 14 speaks to paternity. And um, again, he brings our attention to the scriptures many times. And he actually gives a few charts uh, throughout that chapter where he links um, the Our Father uh, to, um, again, uh, things that we should do. And so, uh, again, uh, we're limited on time. But, Father, was there something in that chapter that uh, speaks to you that you'd like to share? Not necessarily just for the sake of time. In the and yes. your preference, it, perhaps we move on a little bit, motherhood on page yes. 321. As fatherhood right. has its prototype in the eternal father who generated a son to his eternal image, so motherhood has its prototype in the woman who, and that's capital W, who from all eternity was given the high summons to be the mother of God incarnate. Since St. Paul describes our Lord as the firstborn of all creatures from Colossians, Mary must therefore be the first mother after whom all mothers are patterned. Yes. And what Fulton Sheen brings to our attention, I think, is that he talks about the mystery of motherhood and how when a woman is with child, she not only just has the child, but the soul of the child within her. And uh, I think that uh, line that he describes that uh, puts me in awe, I know, of my own wife when every time she was with child, and she, I just thought of that mystery that it's not only just a body, but a body and a soul, and the mother gets to carry both body and soul with her as she becomes the mother. We are constantly, on page 324, he writes, we are constantly invited in Scripture to become what we are not, namely, to convert creaturehood into Christianity to become the children of God. Uh, there's a lot just to think about there. Mm -hmm. The yeah. role, of, role of children on page 329. Why don't we talk a little bit about uh, that particular chapter? 
Right. Um, you know, I think sometimes I tend to go to the ending uh, of these chapters because Fulton Sheen, I'd say to people as a writer, he always begins well and ends well. Right. And sometimes some of the best nuggets are found uh, either at the beginning or the end. But at the end of the chapter, he says, the child makes men humble as the thought of God makes men humble. There is a little difference between the two. For the child is, in a certain sense, Emmanuel, or God with us. Great depths of true wisdom are hidden in the heart of those parents who always say their night prayers before the crib of the last-born child. In that, as yet wordless words, they see not the increase of their image, but the very image and likeness of God. With the crib seen as a tabernacle and the child as a kind of host, then the home becomes a living temple of God. The sacristan of that sanctuary is the mother who never permits the tabernacle lamp of faith to go out. Uh, but again, Fulton Sheen saying that children will humble you. And it is so true. Yes. Uh, they do have that great role. No, I agree. I agree absolutely with what you said. The uh, Almost all of the beginnings of each chapter and the end of each chapter are always high have always been highlighted by me in going in reading this book. But on page 336, uh, coming to towards the conclusion, he writes, love exists only where there is freedom. To be forced to love is hell. To be free in love is heaven. Where love is, there is freedom. Since the child is the flower of love, it is earth's sacrament of freedom. As the cradles come back into the world, freedom will come back. This freedom will consist not in throwing off restraint, which is license, but in the increase of new centers of freedom. In each child, God whispers a new secret to the world, adds a new dimension of immortality to creation, and makes the clinging hearts of husband and wife feel a little freer as they look into that strange and mutual hope which has come to them from God. Yes. I think, again, another line where you have to put down the book and ponder that for a while. So, and again, this book is full of those moments. So, all right. I think we can move on still. I know there's just yeah, still about another... Mary, motherhood in the home. Why don't you begin? Yeah, I, I think, um, again, Sheen starts with the perfection of all motherhood is Mary, the mother of Jesus, because she is the only mother in all the world who, had, who was made to order by her divine son. No creature can create his own mother. And she talks about, uh, of course, God creating her um, and thinking of her um, many centuries before, you know, how this ability to make your own mother. But Fulton Sheen, time and time again, says to us, Mary is the model for all mothers. And um, again, he really stresses that in this chapter. And on um, page 342 to 343, um, it's, it's, it's a very powerful uh, part of the, the book to me. Mary holds an important place in Christianity, not because men put her there, but because her own son put her there. He needed body and blood 
to be a man. He who is God created the mother to make him a man. He needed lips with which to teach, hands to bless, feet to search for wandering sheep, a side whereon John might lean. He needed eyes that he might read hearts, fingers that would mold clay to open blind eyes to the light of God's sunshine, ears to hear the plaintive plea of ragged beggars. He needed a human will by which he might give an example of obedience, hands and feet to nail upon a cross in propitiation for the sins of man. So he made Mary. He who is joy asked her to give him tears. He who is rich asked her to make him poor, that through his poverty we might be rich. He who is wisdom asked her to give him the gift to grow in wisdom by learning through suffering. He who is the shepherd bade her make him a lamb that he might be the sacrifice for our sins. He who is the spirit begged her for flesh and blood that he might give us the Eucharist. So devoted was he to her that when a woman in the crowd lifted up her voice in praise of his mother, blessed is the womb that bore thee, the breast that thou hast sucked, he reminded that woman that his mother's glory was still greater, quote, shall we not say, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it, close quote from Luke. He was hearkening back then to Mary's humble answer to God's word as announced by the angel, quote, let it be unto me according to thy word, close quote. And finally at the cross, he proclaimed that she who is his mother is also ours, quote, this is thy mother. Sorry for reading that long passage, but it just seems to me it is so wonderful. Yeah. It's so necessary, so necessary. And, you know, that, that passage from Scripture, of course, when he uh, talks about uh, being on the cross on Calvary, when he says, woman, behold your son, and to the apostle he loved, behold your mother, it was at that moment we all became children of Mary through a very beautiful spiritual adoption. And so, again, Mary is our mother. And, uh, Father, I tell you, uh, that was such a powerful passage. I think it's almost something beautiful to end on. I know that you, we only have a few minutes left, and we still yes. have uh, five more chapters to discuss. Yeah, well, that's but, not going to happen. But uh, yeah. <laughs> what about the dark night of the body? What, what was he right. teaching us here? Well, I think it's it's important that Sheen talks about the body. And, um, you know, again, at the beginning and the end are, are some powerful passages. He begins the chapter by saying, one of the greatest mistakes the human heart can make is to seek pleasure as the goal of life. Uh, pleasure is a byproduct of the fulfillment of duty. It is a bridesmaid, not a bride. It is something which attends and waits on man when he does that which he ought. And when he ends the chapter, he, of course, uh, puts us into the right frame of mind when he talks about the real happiness of life begins to leave at the moment when the ego experiences its greatest pleasure. For no egotistical satisfaction is ever attained 
except at someone else's expense. Love without sacrifice diminishes the love. To demand pleasure without loving revolts the partner. To demand without patience discourages. During the, during the dark night of the body, one is closest to capturing the prize, one step beyond mediocrity, and we are saved. The uh, passage that, one of the passages that I highlighted were, was, or is on page 359, where he writes, one of the most insidious influences in modern society comes from those who develop a social conscience without an individual conscience, or who separate love of neighbor from love of God, or who feel that by transferring their inner sense of guilt to others whom their social conscience derides, they can thereby escape the inner sense of guilt to which their personal consciences bears witness. By reforming others, they acknowledge the need of regeneration but not in their own hearts. I just like to say that I believe there's so much of this going on in the world right now. Yes, I would agree. Well, some final thoughts from you. Well, I think it's, um, you know, the terms for better or for worst. Uh, we think of the marriage vows that are made, uh, you know, in sickness and health, for better or for worse, and that, uh, again, what God has joined that no man put asunder. Um, this whole idea that love endures forever and that God is love. And so I think it's this idea that we have to really take seriously this. It takes three to get married. Um, we need, it's a triune love. You need to have God in the mix. And uh, again, the grace of the sacrament of marriage to assist couples. So uh, again, these are spiritual strategies, I think, that not only just uh, newlyweds and engaged couples can glean from this book, but couples that have been married 10, 20, 30, and even 40 years, uh, there's something in this book for everyone. And I'll just read um, uh, one sentence on page 382. Um, since marital love is the shadow cast on earth by the love of Christ for his church, then it must have Christ's redemptive quality. Our guest this evening, uh, who has written a book, an anthology titled Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments, is Al Smith. Al, thank you for being here and uh, I'm certainly going to want you back again because I would love to go over the anthology on, uh, on what Bishop Sheen has written about prayer. Yes. Um, I have five anthologies in total. Uh, of course, three have uh, been produced by Sophia Institute Press. Uh, the fourth one is coming around Christmas time and the fifth anthology in the new year. So, uh, again, a pleasure to put these collections together to help uh, people, uh, of course, fall in love with the writings of Fulton Sheen and at some point, of course, be a little bit thrifty, give them some value for their money, including uh, two books in one or, uh, in the case of The Cries of Jesus from the Cross, seven books in one. So, uh, again, thank you again for having me, You're Father welcome. Ron. Thank you, and blessings on you and all your loved ones. Thank you. All right. Good night. We have, um, I'd like to read from 
uh, from the book one more time. Every person carries within his heart a kind of blueprint of what he loves. Plato may not have been far wrong when he described knowledge as a memory from another life, but is rather made up of the millions of thoughts, actions, and desires which have fused together in the making of character. One hears a melody for the first time and loves it. That is because that kind of music was already within the heart. So it is with love. A person is met and suddenly one, quote-unquote, falls in love. May it not be that the particular person is the incarnation of an ideal? The Word became flesh, from John 1.14. The ideal became personal. What was dreamed became historical and real. As the French author put it, to know a woman at the hour of desire, one must respect her at the exquisite hour of dream. Love, then, is an act of faith, a declaration of the unseen as the real. Don't forget then how precious life is and how powerful love is. Tell someone now that you love him or her. Pray for peace as if it depended on you alone and come back next Sunday and amplify with us.